It's usually our custom at this time to ask for any prayer requests or uh, praises that you might have. I think um, Pastor started Wednesday night uh, with a good idea, uh, so we might want to continue that this morning as we pray for our relationship as individuals with our God, uh, the relationship of our family with God, and the relationship of our nation with God. So that's something we can continue to pray for at this hour. Um, have anything you want to say about Carissa? Well, that's a praise, from, from a prayer request to a praise all in one week. Yeah. And how are you feeling? <laughs> I know exactly what you're going through, so I've been there too often. Okay, so continue to pray for Carissa, pray for Trisha, she recovers from vertigo. <laughs> Any other prayer requests or praises? Ken? Long drive there and back, but it was worth it. <laughs> well, good. Anything else? Yeah, I, uh, Micah. We've got a couple of people that uh, know what migraines are all about in here. Okay. Tim Vaughn and his wife and their son, Patrick, will be here. He'll be preaching this afternoon. Okay. Well. I have to say, you're on the way. I hope I'm not moving. Okay. Well, pray for the Kahn family as they travel here to minister to us this afternoon. Okay, then let's take these things before our Lord. Uh, Brother Ken, would you uh, pray to God for these uh, matters, please?
Last week we were studying in earnest, um, beginning our study of the book of Judges. Um, we went through ch- uh, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 1. We were talking about <clears throat> what God had instructed the uh, Israelites to do. Uh, they were to go into the promised land and they were to uh, rid the land of the Canaanites and the Moabites and Amorites and Hittites and, and um, <clears throat> to claim that land as their own. And uh, Joe, could you? This is high class here. We've got an AV assistant here, audiovisual tech here. Okay, there's a little button that says focus there. Can they see it? Right. <clears throat> and we saw last week that um, after consulting with the high priest and the ephod, uh, that uh, Judah down here is going to lead the fight against the Canaanites. Now, the battle has pretty much been won by Joshua. And and as Pastor said on Wednesday nights, um, Joshua, towards the end there, has divided up the land, and it's divided up into certain sections for each tribe here. And uh, now they're going to go into that land that they've been designated to to work and uh, rid the land of of the... uh, the people that God has commanded them to uh, deal with. And so in the process of this, uh, I said what is important here that we want to pay attention to was God's command and his promises, man's response, whether he obeys God or rebels against God, and then God's response to that, either he will bless the people or he will pass judgment on the people. And so we started off our study in verses 1 through 11, uh, 1 through 10, looking at Judah's response and the faithfulness of their response. And Judah went in to uh, Bezak, the first victory, um, captured the city, uh, destroyed what was referred to at that time as the world ruler, uh, Adonai Bezak, uh, captured him. Um, dealt with him as he had dealt with other kings. And uh, he said that God has dealt with me as I have done others, and therefore it is good. Uh, So he accepted God's justice in that regard. And so um, things seems to be going well for Judah. Things um, right now are are progressing as, as planned. And so we find ourselves in verse 11 this morning. So if you turn to Judges chapter 1 and verse 11. Judges 1, verse 11. If you look up here on the map, most of our reading today will take place down here around Hebron 
uh, Jerusalem, uh, Debir, and towards the end we, we get to Gaza and uh, Ashrod. And uh, I want you to pay, <coughs> take note as well that uh, you don't see Simeon. Simeon's land is right in here. And um, eventually it says in Scripture that Simeon will take its land out of Judah. And they were kind of right there in the middle. And we'll uh, touch base on that in a few minutes about Simeon's role here. But first of all, we're going to start off with um, a love story. So verse 11. Then from there he went against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kerakith Seraph. And Caleb said, the one who attacks Kerakith Seraph and captures it, I will give him my daughter Aksa for a wife. And Othanel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksa, for a wife. Then it came about when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Then she alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish for yourself? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the south country, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So we see here one of the most famous love stories in Scripture, a very romantic uh, story. And the thing is that it's true, and that's, that's the impressive part. But it's also the second time that this story has been told. It was also told in Joshua 15, 13 through 19. And we know that when something is repeated in Scripture, like holy, 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 it's done for emphasis. It's, there's something important there for us to grasp and look at. And so we see here this same story repeated in Judges that was originally repeated or told in Joshua. Now, the scripture here talks about the city of Debir down here. <clears throat> That's the setting of the story. And Debir means word. The city was formerly Karakas Seraph, which means city of books. So you see a connection between word and city of books. This means that uh, Debir was really a city of uh, a library city, similar to the town of Alexandria in Egypt. Um, it was where this uh, clay tablets were stored. It was the warehouse for the philosophical books of the Canaanite religion. It was their genealogical records. It was their trading records. It was their treaties. It was their land documents. All of those things were located in Debir. 
So to destroy this place was to destroy their entire civilization or culture. So as you can well imagine, De Beer was well guarded for an entire civilization depended on the preservation of its books. And we had a touch of that here in our country after 9-11 and the World Trade Centers came down. Immediately they realized how much stuff was centrally stored in those two buildings. And afterwards there was a, a great plan to disperse some of that information so it wouldn't be located all in one spot and thus be destroyed on such a day as 9-11. Caleb and Joshua were the only two spies who went into the land and came back with a report that said, we can do this, we can take the land of Canaan. But as a result, they were the only two that would eventually be allowed to return and enter that land. It was the giants who had frightened the people away. And we can well imagine what was on Caleb's mind for 40 years as he wandered in the desert. Thus, when Joshua offered to let Caleb have a pick of the land, Caleb chose the land of the giants. Joshua 14, 6-12 explains his choice. And the reason he chose that land because he had been thinking about it and contemplating about it for all those years. And last week we talked about the conquest of Hebron and the giants and the sons of Anak. And it was Caleb who led that conquest. So this was the land that he chose, the land of giants, uh, for his inheritance. Now, just a side note here, we know that Caleb was not a, a racial Israelite, but he was a convert from the Canitzites. And this is remarkable in itself. It shows the generous grace of our God. Like the Uzziah later in, under David, Caleb, the convert, was better soldier than many of the people or men who were born into the family of Israel. So God welcomed him with open arms into his family. Caleb's father had a younger son, Kenaz, and his son, Caleb's nephew, was Othniel. Now Caleb offered to marry his daughter, Aksa, to whomever conquered Debir. And for those of you who were parents of a daughter, um, when you think about it, this was a shrewd move on his part. Um, it ensured a worthy son-in-law for himself, and it ensured a worthy husband for his daughter. Because Caleb knew that the only way that they were going to take the beer was through the strength of the Lord. And so this assured him a godly son-in-law and a godly husband for his daughter. So in a few lines here, we have a great hallmark love story. Othniel, to win the bride, had to destroy the heavily guarded city of the giants. 
when you think about some of the storybooks, um, you guys went to see Shrek the other night, right? The play. <laughs> Here's Shrek going to rescue the princess, slay the dragon, you know. That's make-believe, but here is a true story. No, no princess could have asked more of her prince than what Othnel did to destroy those giants. This romance is but a symbol of the gospel, however. Remember one of the things I said when we introduced here, look for pictures through, through the book of Judges that reflect uh, certain biblical truths. So we know it was the greater Othanel, Jesus Christ, who conquered the wicked one of this world in order to win his holy bride, the church. We see that symbolized here in this relationship. The destruction of Debir is one of more revelation, uh, one more revelation of how to conquer Canaan. The words, the philosophy of the Canaanites must be destroyed and replaced with the word of God. In America today, it is more and more the case that the city of books is in the hands of the heathen and their secular humanist philosophies. The pornography industry today makes between 6 and $15 billion a year. Federal laws are taxing book publishers for any unsold books in their inventory, which means uh, there are fewer Christian books to be published and driving out some of the smaller Christian publishers. And <clears throat> I'm sure that there's, that is not something that was overlooked in the passing of that law. So in our own situation, our, our books, Christian literature is under fire even here in this, this country. Now the second half of the story deals with the, not the conquest, but with the occupation. Caleb had given Aksa and through her Othmel a section of land in the south, which would not have been very well watered. And Aksa asked her father for water so that the land might be plentiful and, and supply their needs. And Caleb gives her the water. Now water is very important in this part of the world, and it's also very important in scripture as well. We know that the Garden of Eden was watered by springs, and those springs flowed together to form the river Eden. And here we see a type of uh, Eden principle uh, taking place. The family of Othniel and uh, Aksa uh, will flourish. They will grow. Uh, they will prosper. Um, their land will become a miniature garden of Eden, be fruitful, and was watered. And such is the promise to every faithful man and wife uh, that follows God and his word. Not necessarily that you're going to be fruitful and uh, prosperous, but you will live in peace uh, under God's rule and uh, be happy. So <clears throat> here we have the promise of the bride of Christ, 
for we may go uh, to our Heavenly Father and ask for whatever we need to carry out the task that he has for us. So we can see the similarities here between the church and the bride. Um, talking, Going to the Father and asking for a blessing. In fact, in verse 15, um, it is specifically called a blessing, the uh, asking of these waters, these springs. So blessings are not only uh, invisible moral things, but they can be physical things as well. Physical things that will make for a good and productive and godly life. Human life is created in the image of God, and thus we should not be surprised to see some very general, as I said in the introduction, vague images of the gospel in the stories of the Old Testament. In fact, uh, a recent book has been published called The Gospel in Every Book of the Old Testament. I haven't read it yet, but I find that interesting that uh, the author can find the gospel throughout the Old Testament in every single book. So when a father sets a task for his son or gives a gift to his daughter, this image is the way God has acted towards his son, Jesus Christ, and towards his daughter, the church. While this may be a picture, not a full-blown picture of typology, there are certain uh, images that uh, we can learn from in this story. Othniel wins uh, his wife by destroying the giants, just as Christ won the church. The father gives the bride to the faithful groom. Finally, the bride or the church asks for water. In our case, the church was asking for the Holy Spirit. And that added blessing was given to us on Pentecost. Moving down to verse 16 now, um, Judges chapter 1. We see the blessings of the Kenites. And the son of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of palm trees with his sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is the south of Arad, and there went and lived with the people. The Kenites were part of the Midianites, uh, descendants of Abraham. And Moses had married into the Kenite tribe, one that was governed by Jethro, his father-in-law. And normally taking wives outside of the family of Israel uh, was condemned, uh, particularly when it involved idolatry. And that was something that we'll see throughout the book of Judges, one of the sins that uh, uh, the people of Israel committed here. But uh, in this particular case, um, uh, if a woman was of another faith or another, uh, if she converted to the Jewish religion, that was a form of evangelism. And it's also a picture of incorporation of the Gentiles into the bride of Christ. But in this case, Jethro was a faithful worshiper of the God of Abraham, and so conversion was not needed. And Moses had persuaded part of Jethro's family to go into the land of milk and honey, uh, which was Israel, the land of Canaan. 
And since Moses was of the tribe of Levi, and Levi had no inheritance in the Canaan uh, land, it was necessary then for the Kenites to associate with another tribe, and they chose to associate with the royal tribe of Judah. We see they broke camp at Jericho, the city of palm trees, in 2 Chronicles 28.15, and they moved into the Judaite territory and lived with the people of God there. Again, um, here is a miniature picture of salvation. Those outside of Israel can either join with God's people and be saved, or they can war with God's people and be destroyed. Verse 17. Then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zaphath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. So now we see from last week, uh, Judah's making good on her bargain with Simeon. We remember last week he said, Simeon, you come and help me, then I will go and help you. And we see Judah acting upon that promise. The destruction of the Canaanites uh, at Zaphath uh, was total, so that the place was called Hormah. Now this is not the only Hormah that we read about in, in Scripture. Uh, in Numbers 21, 1 through 3, we read of a place that was also called Hormah, and that was devoted to destruction. And as a result, it received that name, Hormah. Hormah means a place under the ban, totally destroyed. To be placed under the ban is to be devoted to death. Just as a Nazarite was devoted to God in life, for instance, Samson and Samuel. So the banned person or the banned city was devoted wholly to God in death. To be under the ban means to be cursed and to be destroyed in total destruction. A prime example of that would be the city of, of Jericho. Everything living was to be killed and all the treasures brought to the house of God and the city was to be burned with fire. No personal plunder was allowed. <clears throat> Turn over in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy 13. We see the instructions given here on what they should do when dealing with a city like this. Verses 12. Deuteronomy 13:12 If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God has given you to live in anyone saying that some worthless man have gone out and from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city saying let's go and serve other gods whom you have not known then you shall investigate search out and inquire thoroughly and if it is true and the matter is certain that this abomination has been committed among you, you shall most certainly strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroy it and all who are in it and its cattle 
with the edge of the sword. And he shall gather all its plunder into the middle of its public square and burn the city and all its plunder with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. And it shall be a ruin forever and shall never be rebuilt. Nothing at all from what is designated for destruction is to cling to your hand in order that the Lord may turn from his burning anger and show mercy to you and have compassion on you and make you increase, just as he has sworn to your fathers. If you will listen to the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments of which I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. So these were the instructions as to what to do uh, in a situation such as this. Uh, people here were Canaanites. They were, again, worshiping other gods. Um, and so God had instructed them to destroy this particular city and rename it Hormah. Um, not every city that they encountered were they going to do this with because God did promise them to live in houses that they didn't build and harvest vineyards that they didn't plant. <laughs> but on occasion, a prime example of uh, God's wrath had to be displayed to remind the people that they were to uh, follow his commands. And this city would then become a, a burnt offering uh, to the Lord your God, um, as we see here. This again is, is brought up in Judges chapter 20 and verse 40 when a apostate uh, Israelite city comes under condemnation and becomes a burnt offering to God later in the book. So as I mentioned, we see Simeon uh, reversing its sin of Genesis 34. Uh, there it abused his calling, bringing judgment against those who were converted to the faith. Here we see Simeon exercise his calling properly. And, and then again, he is, they are blessed, just as Judah was blessed. And uh, they will receive land out of, out of Judah uh, for their property. So this brings to the end of the first section that deals with Judah's initial faithfulness. Uh, let me just make a, a couple of comments here to summarize before we go on. First thing, we see three basic ways in which God deals with his enemies. Uh, they were either killed in battle or they were physically removed from the land, driving the Canaanites out. There was a reckoning, uh, uh, like with Ananias Bezak, uh, uh, the execution of perfect justice, an eye for an eye. And then we saw here recently with Horma, the total sacrificial destruction, uh, as we see here. So those are three basic ways that uh, this section introduces how God deals with some of his enemies. Second, uh, we see a series of types or pictures, uh, what is meant to conquer Canaan. Since the Great Commission tells the church to uh, make disciples of all nations, we can learn, I think, some lessons from here uh, dealing with this conquest. Each of the conquests uh, is a picture of some 
central aspect of wickedness that had to be dealt with, whether it was idolatry um, or covetousness or, or whatever. Uh, these examples of conquests were examples of, for us to realize that there are sin in our lives that has to be dealt with and conquered. Each of the conquests shows what Christ, the royal person, which is pictured here by Judah, has already done for us. And then in turn, what we have to do to apply his love and his commands to the people that we work with throughout the world. So let me give you some examples. Simeon. Picture Simeon as Christ invites those under the curse to join with him and find salvation. We see that's what Judah did in order that Simeon might find salvation to come and join him. And this becomes our task as well as we face a world that is full of apostate churches and many personal giants that we have to conquer in our own lives. Picture Bezak. Christ destroyed the prince of the world, just like Ananias Bezak was destroyed. And we are instructed to do the same. In Romans 16.20 it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So we are also to fight the battle against the evil of this world. Picture Jerusalem, we mentioned last week. Christ destroyed the old Jerusalem in 70 AD and established the new Jerusalem, his church. It is our task to hold it like Judah did, to hold it in the high country, to hold it in the south country, to hold it in the lowlands. We should hold true and fast to the church, the true church. The city of Hebron, if you remember, picture that, that was Kerakoth Arabah, the, where the giants lived. Christ conquered the giants as if we are united with him. No giants can stand against us. And he has given us sanctuary in himself. And we must offer that sanctuary to other people as we evangelize and spread the gospel. Debir, the city of books, picture that as Christ cast down the philosophies and the um, warped ideas of this world. And he was able to strike them down and replace them with his word, the true word, the true foundation of civilization. Picture Asuka, Christ has given his bride a good land. We should entreat the Father for the water, the Holy Spirit, that will make it fruitful. So we have here a number of pictures that we could apply and, and look at uh, in our own lives here. They're just not something that we should uh, read over and skip over. But things start to deteriorate. Things tend to go downhill. So turn to uh, verse 18 of, of Judges 1. Look at verse 18. And Judah took Gaza and its territory, 
and Ashkelon and its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And those are over here on the side of the coast over here. There's Ekron. But notice there was three, uh, three cities mentioned here. Um, and that's great that they did that. Uh, but there were five cities, five Philistine cities that were given to uh, Judah. Ash, Ashad and, and Gath were not mentioned. But those were the other two that uh, were given to them. Um, this is found in uh, Joshua 15:47. At this point, then, the story of Judah's conquest hits a bit of a turn. They're bragging about the three cities that they conquered, but they didn't follow God's command and take the other two. Up until now, we have seen nothing but successes, and together with a hint of restoration, even Eden-like garden under some of the conditions. However, we begin to detect signs of failure here. We begin to see that the tribe after tribe failed to drive out all the evil Canaanites from their land. So the question arises, after initial successes, why didn't they follow through? What do you suppose they stumbled and fell? Any ideas? Pardon me? Ah, lack of faith. Okay. Any other reasons? That I think is the best answer, but any others? There could be a combination of them, too. So. All right, yeah, that's another one. Keep in mind that this, these people had spent 40 years in the desert, and Joshua had to turn them into a fighting unit. They had, you know, he had to train them. And so they really weren't designed to be soldiers, per se. So it's very possible that uh, they had been fighting for such a long time, they became battle-weary, and they lacked the discipline and energy to to reach their goal, even though it was within sight. Another reason it came to my mind was that after the death of Joshua, all the leadership roles became uh, localized with the local um, uh, tribe's leadership. And uh, there was no unity. There was no common purpose uh, that Joshua had provided for them. And I believe that there's um, some spiritual decay that is probably taking place as well. They probably had started to swell up with pride. Look at what we've done so far. We can handle the Canaanites. They're no problem. We can live with them um, and not be tempted by their, their uh, uh, false religion, uh, their Baal worship. And besides, if we live with them, we can trade with them, we can do business, we can prosper with them. So those are just some of the ideas that I had. It could be, uh, I think the pastor hit it right on, that there was a lack of faith. There was a lack of faith here. And we'll see that in the next verse. 
Um, it could be any of these things, or it could be what we find in verse 19. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not dispose of the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Chariots could not function in the hills, so Judah uh, had no problems with defeating the Canaanites up there. In fact, if you look at all the uh, places that are mentioned in this first chapter that they had taken possession of, they were all in the mountainous areas in the hill country. But God did not limit Judah only to the mountainous regions. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, God had given all the land into her hand. As Judges 4 and 5 will show later, um, God is fully capable of dealing with iron chariots. And thus the problem was not so much the iron chariots. The problem was the lack of faith in order to drive out um, these people. And I think the writer of the... Of, of the, this verse points that out. Now the Lord was with Judah, but, there's that but there, they didn't have the faith or the willingness to put their faith to work to do what God had commanded them. The plains that we're talking about is down in here, kind of in the center of this area. So they were able to take out Hebron and, and Debir and, <clears throat> and along here, but this valley area was was not uh, was not conquered. And the by not conquering the Canaanites there, it kind of set a boundary between Judah and the other tribes, Judah and Simeon and the other tribes. Uh, were, were separated by this, uh, the Canaanites in the valley. And over the centuries, this isolation would bring about uh, a cultural division because they didn't wipe out the Canaanites. They became separated from their other uh, tribes in Israel. Uh, cultural divisions occurred, um, which caused even more trouble, and eventually you had civil war and the two kingdoms split from one another. So I think the basic lesson to learn right here is that minor compromises can grow into major troubles. They didn't do what God commanded them. They were separated from their other tribes. That led to more problems. They compromised. That led to more problems. So we have to think about what minor compromises are we making in our personal life that could lead to more problems. What are we, compromise are we making in our family, in our church, in our nation that are going to lead to more problems? Verse 20. Then they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had spoken, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived in this, with the sons of Benjamin in Israel to this day. 
So we've got Caleb taking Hebron here, and up here, uh, Jerusalem is in uh, the land of Benjamin. I think this verse was written in contrast. You see the contrast taking place here. Um, you have the uh, the old faithful Caleb. Remember, he's about what 85 years old about now, and he's taken Hebron out. So here's an old guy taking on the giants, and he takes them out and destroys them. But you got the Benjamites who did not drive out the normal-sized Jebusites from Jerusalem. Now, keep in mind, last week we know that. Judah had conquered Jerusalem for Benjamin, and yet they still couldn't finish the job. I again believe that lack of faith was the reason. So this was a bad start for Benjamin, and their moral situation was only going to get worse until God saw fit to almost destroy them in, in the end of the book of Judges 19 and 20. And just a side note here, uh, the phrase in that verse that says to this day that kind of gives you the indication when the book of Judges was written. Um, David came in and, and cleaned out the city of Jerusalem, so this book had to be written before David's conquest uh, of Jerusalem. And so now the story shifts again, and we start taking a look at the tribes of Joseph. And I'm going to end it there for right now. And we'll pick up with the tribes of Joseph next week. Any comments or thoughts or ideas? Well, that sounds pretty, pretty important. So. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's close in a word of prayer then. Lord God, we set before you as we study your word. We pray that you would feed us and that we might learn from the, a word that uh, our life depends upon you, uh, our everyday walk with you. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would not shy away from the giants in our life, that, Lord, we would not make excuses, and that, Lord, we would not compromise uh, on a daily basis with the world. Lord, give us strength to uh, fight these battles, uh, that we might persevere, and that, Lord, you would be honored and glorified 
that we would uh, stand true and um, stand bold for the things of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.